Support for Intended is provided by Male Contraceptive Initiative, a 501c3 nonprofit that advances the research and development of new methods of male contraception. MCI is the only organization focused solely on the development of reversible, non-hormonal male contraception, and we've granted over $3 million towards research since 2017. MCI is funded entirely through donations from people like you. We harness the public need and voice to champion male contraception. Make your tax-deductible donation today at malecontraceptive.org. Again, you can donate at malecontraceptive.org. There's so many close calls in history. Um, you know, it's funny, as a, someone who loves to read about history, you always hear about these things and you think, oh, they were so close, you know. Welcome back to Intended. I'm Logan Nichols. Remember John Amory from the first episode? He's the guy working on WIN18446 as a male contraceptive, that molecule that was tested in prisoners and worked as a birth control for men, but it made them really, really sick when they drank alcohol. Those first studies of WIN were in the 1950s, and John is trying to bring a project back from the dead, do something that was started 60-odd years ago. But WIN isn't the only male contraceptive with a backstory. There's been all sorts of projects above and beyond WIN18446 new drugs, devices, and contraceptive options that take the learnings from their predecessors, trying to make something new out of them. One good example of that is hormonal contraception for men. You know hormones, specifically sex hormones. They do all sorts of things in the body, and they're how the vast majority of female contraceptives work. Well, male contraceptive that also uses hormones, it's been in development as well, and it still is. Oh, boy. Um, the first real clinical studies of hormonal contraception were done in the 70s. Um, if you go back and look, they're, you know, they're small, but they were, people were thinking about it and they were thinking about it because the hormonal approach for women had been so successful at that point, right? So the hormonal stuff for women came out in the early 60s and people were like, wow, this works. We could do this for men. And those early small studies in the 1970s, they proved that you could give men testosterone and it would indeed stop them from making new sperm. It was a baseline proof of concept thing. People had known for a long time that this should be one way to make a contraceptive, but there's a big gap between knowing a way to make a drug and then actually doing it. There are scientific and logistical challenges, and then the regulatory agencies, they require tons and tons of proof to make sure that the drug is safe, and it works in the way you say it does. We've known that if you take exogenous testosterone, it suppresses sperm production. We've known that since 1937 by the way, <laughs> but nobody really tried to operationalize it into a male contraceptive until the 70s. These studies in the 1970s laid that foundation so that other studies could follow up and understand how to make it a better, more effective treatment. And then, um, you know, that, that led, the small trials led to the first WHO study, which was conducted, I think, 1984 to 1988. These studies in the 1980s were performed by the WHO, or World Health Organization, and they brought in around 300 couples. It involved the injection of testosterone once a week, and between 60 to 70% of men actually had their sperm count drop to zero. These studies were among the first to actually use the method as a means of birth control, as in, you, the man, can rely on this and no other method to prevent pregnancy. In the clinic, that's a big deal. They're no longer hedging their bets on how this thing works, but they're saying, go ahead, this will work for you, and we want to keep watching it happen. And in those couples who were then given the green light to use it as their form of contraception, I think there was only one pregnancy. And that one pregnancy, this is a bit apocryphal, but the one pregnancy they think actually wasn't fathered by the guy in the study. <laughs> so, 
this is another another element to male contraceptive studies. If you get a pregnancy, you don't really know. So that's another potential source of, you know, failure that we don't even really talk about. But reminder, only 60 to 70 percent of men got that green light. That's not a great way to make a drug saying if you're part of the substantial minority. Well, good luck, bud. Sorry about that. And also the way that testosterone gets cleared by the body, it meant that men who it did work for had to get weekly injections in a doctor's office. Not ideal for a long-term contraceptive method. To tackle the weekly injections thing, clinicians went back to the drawing board. They spent years studying and coming up with combinations of hormones, ones that wouldn't require weekly injections, but could still be effective contraceptives. This took a while, but they came up with something they thought was going to work better than before. And And when they got the okay to test in men, they ran into something um, yeah, unexpected. You know, the third WHO study, the one that was uh, done in the last 10 years and I think was stopped in 2013, uh, was a combination of long-acting testosterone and long-acting progesterone, testosterone undecanoate and norethisterone enanthate. And that was stopped because of mood effects. The trial, which used a few hundred men, was cut short, stopped by independent safety groups who said the side effects, particularly mood changes, were too severe to keep the study going. And when it happened, it caused more news than anyone expected. There were headlines from USA Today that said, male birth control study nixed after men can't handle side effects women face daily. And NPR, male birth control study killed after men report side effects. The comedian Michelle Wolf even had a pretty good riff on it. Aw, poor men couldn't complete the birth control study because it gave you pimples and made you moody. You guys call that side effects? I call that day four of a fairy tale period. Jeez, Michelle, on, on behalf of all men, I, I would like to apologize. Not accepted. That are such little bitches. I mean, one of the side effects is increased sex drive. And little men always end up winning. I mean, this shot may as well be called more sex, less babies. It wasn't a big study, a little over 300 men who did an injection of these hormones every eight weeks. And it's true, most of the side effects reported in the study were similar to those that women experience using hormonal contraception. However, the headlines don't tell the whole story about why the study was canceled. I mean, people differ about how seriously they think that is, but I went back and looked at some of the earlier studies and there were definitely mood effects. Um, The WHO study I think was stopped in particular because one of the subjects committed suicide. Um, which I think is a concern. You know, progesterone in particular, although it improves the efficacy of hormonal approaches, I think is associated with side effects. If there's serious mood effects, even in a subset of men, that, that's going to give everybody a lot of pause before they would approve something like that. It's hard to make a direct comparison of side effects, especially when we're talking about different drugs, different ways of administering them, and across different people. If you and I both smash our hand in the car door, do we experience the exact same pain? If we took an antidepressant, does it make us feel better to the same degree? These things are complicated and sort of unanswerable. What happened in this study in 2013 is that two independent safety committees tried to answer this question by comparing data. They compared this study and other male hormonal contraceptive studies, and they came to two different conclusions. Since one group decided that the risks outweighed the benefits of the study, they acted in the interest of safety, and they shut it down. This backlash and difficulty still resonates in the scientific community, and it's given kind of a black eye to the field of male contraception. Is there a bias? Are men treated differently when it comes to contraception? 
It's worth noting at this point that more than 75% of the men in that canceled study were at least satisfied with the method and willing to use it if it were available. Hormonal contraception for men is still being developed, and it's still in clinical trials. Setbacks have killed other methods, but not this one. And in fact, it's grown. There are multiple kinds of hormonal contraception being tested right now in people, and it's the only one being tested right now in people. There's issues with the hormonal approach, to be sure. Um, on the other hand, the majority of men do very well and they suppress their sperm count. So I can see why the work has continued in some sense, because it's kind of the best thing that we've got at the moment. So that sort of makes hormonal contraception a success story compared to the other big failures. Even though it's been in development since the 70s, the projects have been able to pivot or spin to a different formulation or adapt to changes that keep things alive and moving. Plenty of other projects never even got close to being this far. Some died early in the lab, and some have gotten into human testing, but then they failed. A couple even were backed by the big pharmaceutical companies, ones that thought they'd landed on the next big thing. But right now we've got a graveyard of dead male birth control projects and a pharmaceutical industry that's wholly uninterested in taking up new projects. So that's what we want to cover today. We want to tell you about all those drugs that will never hit the shelf. We'll tell you a few stories of failure, and then we'll talk about why big pharma is MIA when it comes to male contraception. Because after all, these are stories of intention. Stories where people had the intention to make a drug, get it out there, and see what impact it had on the world. And well, the show is about intention, about the drive to do something that hasn't been done before. Stay with us. From Male Contraceptive Initiative, this is Intended. I'm Logan Nichols. And I'm Kevin Shane. Intended is brought to you in part by YTH, an initiative of ETR. YTH's team has decades of experience in public health, research, capacity building, and health education. Using technology and social media to engage young adults in fields like reproductive and sexual health, they pilot innovative solutions to big problems like mental health, sex education, and cyberbullying. One of YTH's projects is Zona Segura, a program that uses the ubiquity of mobile phones to address teen dating violence in Honduras. By providing prevention information, healthy relationship education, and linkage to services and resources, Zona Segura assists young people in overcoming the barriers between them and rights-based, gender-sensitive domestic violence prevention. Learn more about YTH and all their programs at yth.org. Again, that's yth.org. So male contraceptives can come from anywhere. You know the story about how penicillin was discovered totally on accident? Basically, a guy named Alexander Fleming left a bunch of bacterial cultures sitting out over a holiday and noticed one plate had a fungus on it that was killing the bacteria. And from that, he discovered the first modern antibiotic. Since then, antibiotics have saved literally millions of human lives and shaped medicine as we know it. Accidental discovery happens with medicines from lots of places contraception included. New drugs can be discovered from weird fungi and bacteria, or they can be taken and repurposed from old drugs or purified out of plants and herbs. Lots of times it takes getting lucky and seeing an opportunity when it comes up. There's one traditional Chinese herb known as the thunder god vine, and it's been used to treat things like rheumatoid arthritis, fever, and skin diseases. And it's an herb, like a plant you pull from the ground, not a drug. Think ginkgo biloba or ginseng. 
the Thunder God vine wasn't being studied as male birth control. Researchers were actually looking to see if it could treat rheumatoid arthritis, and they noticed that some of the men in the study had lowered sperm counts. Someone, somewhere, realized this was a possible use of the drug, just like Fleming, and they thought, hey, that's weird. And they began pulling the thread, trying to unravel why these men had lower sperm counts. They focused on trying to identify the chemical compound in the plant that actually caused the infertility observed. And they found lots of different chemical compounds, and there were potential male contraceptives, but when they looked deeper, most of these potential drugs had some sort of impossible hurdle associated with them. Some of them caused permanent sterility when they were tested in rats, and some were toxic to other animals. And most people thought that studying the Thunder God vine was going to be a waste of time for male contraception. But one compound was found pretty recently, 2017. Work is still going on, and a group is developing it and seeing if it has the potential to be a male contraceptive pill. This sort of research is really early stage, like it's still in the laboratory and a long way away from being tested in people, much less being on the shelf as Thunder God Vine contraception, but in this case, at least someone's working on it. Don't get me wrong, some studies like hormonal contraception or the Thunder God Vine, they either have the time or the money or the people to keep on studying and to pivot and to work on things further, but most of the time when something hits a wall, it kills the project entirely. One case of a totally dead project is Miglostat. Miglostat is actually a drug that's actually approved by the FDA already. It treats Gaucher disease under the trade name Zavesca. And using an already approved drug is a great approach, right? It's already been tested in people, you already know that it's safe enough, and really all you have to do is prove that it does this other thing too. Sure, when we think of contraception, there are some complications, like you have to be able to treat a healthy population with it for a really long time, and it can't interfere with other things, and the safety has to be just right, but it's way better than starting from scratch. The way Meglostat works is it inhibits an enzyme that makes a specific type of lipid, essentially a kind of fat. People suffering from Gauchets have too much of that lipid, and Meglostat lowers the levels. Researchers in the 2000s discovered that the production of sperm actually requires a similar lipid, and they thought, hey, we know that Miglostat lowers those levels, let's try putting it in rats and see if they keep producing sperm. So researchers got together, they did some mouse trials, they showed that the mice were infertile when they got Miglostat, and they thought they had a real thing here. They kept on working, and they got all the data that they needed to justify checking sperm production in humans. But when they tested Miglostat in humans and measured their sperm counts, there just wasn't an effect. The authors of the study offered a few reasons why there could be a difference between mice and humans, but they didn't land on anything they felt confident about. So, you might ask, well, if Miglostat was already in people, shouldn't we have already known this? I mean, people taking the drug should be able to tell you if they're fertile or not. Well, Gaucher disease is pretty rare, and people who are taking Miglostat might not be too concerned with having children. Also, if clinical trials weren't looking for infertility when testing the drug, it might not have come up at all. That's the problem with a rare disease. You have such a small sample size that you can't really know for sure until you take a step back and study something a different way. But our next story, Gossipal, it started small and got big. Like thousands of people big. Gossipal is a yellowish compound that actually comes from the cotton plant. Like regular cotton, blue jeans, t-shirts, cotton. This is probably one of the best known failures in male contraception, and it starts nearly a hundred years ago. The story is that in the late 1920s, a doctor was in China visiting a village, and he discovered that the people there used cottonseed oil for cooking. This village in particular was using cottonseed oil to fry and cook foods because it was cheap and it was easy to get. 
Apparently, though, at the same time, not a single child had been born to any of the 30-odd families in the village. This doctor got really interested, and he started digging. He found out that some women had left the village and gotten married to other men, and when they left, they were able to get pregnant again. Even more interesting was that women who came into the village from the outside, even those who had had children before, they weren't able to have more children in the village. The villagers were really angry, and they were confused. They thought that God was trying to exterminate their tiny little farming community. But as time went on, other oils got cheaper and easier to get, and the village stopped using cottonseed oil to cook their food. All of a sudden, some of the families were able to get pregnant again. Turns out that cottonseed oil they were cooking with, it had a compound that was causing infertility. When researchers isolated it, they named it Gossipal. Gossipal sat on the vine, not really doing much for a really long time. Eventually, the Chinese government got interested in Gossipal and started testing it in animals and eventually humans. The early studies were promising, and they kept growing. More and more studies were starting, and by the mid-1980s, the Chinese government had tested Gossipal on over 10,000 men to see if it would work as a contraceptive. And Gossipal did work really well. The largest trial reported a contraceptive rate of up to 99%. But there was a catch. While Gossipal worked as a contraceptive, these clinical studies revealed two facts that ultimately doomed it. Firstly, some of the trials reported that the infertility could be permanent. Up to 50% of men in some cases were permanently unable to have children after taking the drug. On top of that, Gossipal had some pretty scary side effects, like paralysis that got worse as you took higher and higher doses. A Brazilian company tried to revive Gossipal in the 1990s with a low-dose formulation, but Ultimately, they found that irreversibility was just too much to deal with. Dozens of papers were published afterwards, all trying to bring Gossipal back, understand the side effects, and change the drug while keeping its function as a birth control method. But it didn't work. And to our knowledge, nobody is working on Gossipal today. These are just some of the best examples of how male birth control has been in development for a really long time. Remember that joke? Male birth control has been 10 years away for 50 years? It's true. Each and every one of these things had a moment where it looked like it was going to do it. They thought, oh, okay, well, we're just going to do the tests and do our due diligence, but this one's going to be the one. It's just going to take a little time. I was talking with John Amory about all these failures. He's that guy working on Win 18446, who you heard at the top of the show, and he said something that I hear a lot. You know, just like there was an Einstein who figured out the universe and there was a Pincus who figured out female contraceptive, there will be somebody rather who will come through. And then, you know, historians in 100 years will be reading about that person and be like, oh, well, they were the person who figured out that X did Y and therefore by giving Z, you could afford a male contraception. And isn't that wonderful? I mean, I, I, that'll happen. It, I don't know when. This sort of optimism, this attitude where you just beat your head against the wall until the wall caves in. Well, that's common among scientists. They deal with failure all day, every day, because that's how they learn. They use it to refine ideas and move forward, and then eventually they'll get it right. But male contraception has had a lot of failure to learn from already. And those projects, when they fail, they're usually dead and unmoved. Sometimes someone will keep grinding away or they'll revisit a project, like when 18446 or the hormonal contraception. But it takes a massive effort usually more than one person with a lab. And that's where most of the research around male birth control is. 
and small labs being studied with little teams of people who are scrappy but limited and underfunded. Those small labs get their funding from government agencies, usually ones like the National Institutes of Health. The NIH funds academics and others to study the basics, learn what makes the world tick, and they do it in a way that can be applied to make people healthier. But as research progresses and we get closer to products that can make people healthier and be commercialized, science tends to make a shift to the private sector, where it starts getting looked at with other intentions. Can we make a product? Is this a viable market? Will people use it? For drugs, the big pharmaceutical companies are usually the people who take that step. The people who have pretty much always been responsible for moving research out of the basic early stuff and into a drug that you can buy. And the pharmaceutical industry? They seem to be totally uninterested in male contraception. Actually, I talked with John about this too. And it's hard. And then the other issue that everyone always asks me about is uh, pharmaceutical companies. You know, why aren't they more interested? And uh, that's a very interesting discussion. Uh, having worked with pharmaceutical companies on this in the past, I know that they... And what John said here is that pharmaceutical companies are dollars and cents, brass tacks sort of organizations. They're interested in making a product, having that product turn a profit, and riding the wave as long as they possibly can. And that process of making a product is expensive, so whatever product they make, it had better work. It had better get through all the clinical trials, all the development hurdles, and they get bought by lots and lots of people and make lots and lots of money. Today though, Big Pharma doesn't seem like they believe in male contraception. Big Pharma wasn't always MIA for male contraception. They had boom years in the late 90s and early 2000s. New tech like high-powered computing had opened doors that previously didn't even exist. Before that, doing experiments and analyzing data, it was still really manual and required lots of hands-on approaches that took a lot of time. But all this new tech allowed for big leaps in science, and as computers got faster and cheaper, it permeated every field, contraception included. Things like the Human Genome Project were made possible by this tech. And the Genome Project sequenced every bit of human DNA. They created this vast trove of data that inside, somewhere, people thought would identify what makes the body tick, what makes you, you. Researchers would find this new gene, and they'd be able to tell that it probably does this thing because of where it is and what it looks like. Or they'd find this other gene, and they don't know what it does, but it's everywhere, and someone should really, really study it. And really, there was more work for people to do than they knew what to do with. And it was all exciting. This was a golden age for research, and, and all that data was information on fertility, information that could be used to make new birth control options. Around the year 2000, lots of big companies had contraceptive development programs, big names in the pharmaceutical industry, names like Bayer, Wyeth, Organon, Sharing. These companies were looking at new methods of contraception, ways that you could either hormonally or otherwise make a birth control option that had different characteristics than the pills and implants on the market at the time. They were looking at them for both men and women, and generally investing a lot of time, effort, and money. They built programs, they hired teams, and it looked like they were going to be in it for the long haul. But if you look around today, none of the big pharmaceutical companies have a male contraceptive development program. About 10 years later, all those programs have pretty much been canceled. I know that they at least thought there might be some potential for it. My understanding of their perspective of the world, it's a very dollars and cents sort of calculation. And what John is saying is that pharmaceutical companies, they're companies. They have to make money. They have to keep the shareholders happy and they have to bring in cash so they can pay for the crazy expensive process of making a new drug. 
Ballpark estimates for bringing a drug to market are around $2 billion. That money has to come from somewhere. And lots of drugs fail after years of research and millions of dollars get invested. And they can fail for all sorts of reasons, too. You have to take way too much of a drug to make it worthwhile, or it costs too much to make a dose, or the pills aren't stable on the shelf. So drug companies are really picky, and they only go after the known winners. But even if a drug gets all the way through development and onto the market, the problems don't end there. They're interested in products that are going to make money, and they're not interested in funding things that aren't going to make money, or that are going to get them into legal problems. And contraception is a big area for litigation. Drug manufacturers get sued all the time, and it can be for big money. The biggest example was in 2012, where GlaxoSmithKline settled for $3 billion after they made misleading statements and kept safety data secret. Right now, today, Bayer is in the middle of a giant set of lawsuits that link Roundup, the weed killer, to cancer. Bayer's lost a string of court cases, and most people think they're in pretty deep. Interestingly enough, Bayer has also been behind two of the biggest lawsuits in contraception. One is Esure, which is a device used as permanent contraception for women. In 2018, it was pulled from the market because customers were reporting complications, like the device could migrate and cut into nearby organs, or even though it was a permanent method, they were getting dangerous, unintended pregnancies. The FDA gave Esure a black box warning, essentially the strongest warning they issue, reserved for really serious safety stuff, and Bayer decided to pull the device from the market on their own. The reason Bayer gave for pulling Esure was, quote, an overall decrease of permanent contraception in the United States, a growing reliance on other birth control methods, and inaccurate and misleading publicity about the device. Bayer is also behind Yasmin, an oral birth control that many lawsuits allege causes blood clots and stroke. So, you know, I think the most litigated drug over the last 10 years has been uh, Yasmin, which is the female birth control pill uh, made by uh, Bayer Sharing Pharma. Uh, They're willing to fight those lawsuits and pay the settlements because they recoup more in profits than they spend. Um, I I think that they worry a lot about a male contraceptive not meeting that bar. Lots of drugs face lawsuits, but if there are enough customers and it's safe for most everyone, a drug can still make money, even if they have to settle some court cases. But pharmaceutical companies are worried male contraceptives won't meet that bar. They think it'll either be too risky or won't have enough customers to make it worth their while. Because, think about it, contraceptives have to treat young, healthy men for a really long time. They have to be really, really safe. And pharma isn't convinced that men will use it in the numbers they need to still turn a profit. Arguably, there is a market. I think that they've looked at the market, the potential market versus the potential drawback uh, in terms of side effects and litigation and decided it's it's a risky proposition. So it's not one that they're willing to engage in. Um, Does that mean I'm hopeless about a pharmaceutical partnership? No. Um, I think the right pharmaceutical company might be interested. Um, And I've also seen, I've worked with a couple pharmaceutical companies that are um, sort of value-driven and small enough that they might be willing to uh, engage. And so that's, that's kind of the hope, I think, at this point. We'll get into this more in future episodes, but very broadly, there are dozens of studies that show that around half of men are interested in male contraception. And that's now, before there are products on the market, before people really know what male contraception is going to look like. That's well over 75 million men in the United States alone. Yeah, it's kind of a chicken and the eggs thing, right? Companies will say to you they want to, want to believe that what they're going to spend money on is going to make a profit. 
and there's no there's nothing there's no male contraceptive out there to prove that to them so you know <laughs> it's a bit of a circular it's a bit of a tautology you sort of go round and round and round i asked john what he wanted to see from pharmaceutical companies and why they abandoned their research program so suddenly I guess I would like to see the companies that are making lots of female contraceptives take more interest. Uh, you know, Organon Sharing, uh, which is now called Bayer, and then Wyeth is the other one in the field. And, uh, you know, they've sort of, they're not interested at the moment. But they, I think what happens is that the business leadership in those companies changes every few years. So there's no real sustained interest in the field. And what John means by sustained here is decades like 20 years of sustained, focused development. Because that's how long it takes to make a drug. When companies decide they want to commit to something, make a drug that targets this disease or condition or whatever, they sometimes start what's called a discovery program. And this is a program that essentially develops a drug from nothing. That's when drug companies decide they want to be in a certain area, but there really aren't any drugs to go off of, or for some reason they have to start from square one. It involves finding out what sort of ways you can treat a condition and then build drugs to match it. It takes lots of time and lots of money. In the 2000s, a few companies were looking at contraception, trying to think of it differently. Because they saw birth control as a potentially big market. Lots of women that want different options, specifically ones that are non-hormonal, and men? That's a totally untapped market. Why not put some time into figuring out how we can make new birth control drugs that don't look like any of the ones that are out there now? Why don't we see if we can be the only drug company out there that offers male birth control? Wyeth at the time made the, made the commitment on the discovery side. Um, in the beginning, when we started to develop our portfolio, most of those targets were in the mail. That's Greg. So my name is Greg Kopp. I'm currently Director of Research and Development for the Contraceptive Technology Innovation Initiative at FHI 360. And just for transparency's sake, he's also on our board of directors at Male Contraceptive Initiative. Greg has a long resume. I would play you the tape of him telling me his background so you could hear it directly from him, but it's three and a half minutes long. In short, Greg's field is reproductive health and medicine. He was a professor, he worked in the clinic, and he worked at Wyeth Pharmaceuticals when they were investing time and money into a big contraceptive program, a program that was mostly focused on male options. Nowadays, Wyeth doesn't really exist anymore. They were bought by Pfizer in 2009 in a $68 billion merger. And Greg? Today he works for FHI 360, a nonprofit that focuses on contraception for women. They're actually just down the road from us in Durham, North Carolina. Back in Greg's Wyeth days, the early 2000s, the company had a big meeting. They talked about possible non-hormonal methods for both men and women and ways that they could upend the market of contraception. They were leaning on a bunch of new science that they thought gave them an edge and a way to make birth control that was totally different than what they had seen before. The work that was coming out from, you know, a lot of the knockouts that were being done and sequencing of the human genome is that there were quite a few very novel genes that were uniquely expressed in the reproductive system or, uh, you know, solely expressed. And so I think that was part of the impetus behind Wyeth, you know, getting into the non-hormonal contraceptive development space. But Wyeth wasn't the only company who thought they could make birth control better. Wyeth started working on contraception in part because competitors were also getting into the field. Competitors like Sharing and Merck, two of the biggest names at the time. And so these companies, Wyeth included, they went head first. 
They started these discovery programs that were designed to give the research legs, get it moving and growing and in the right direction over the course of, you know, a decade plus. Greg took over Wyeth's program was looking at male contraceptives, finding out how drugs can impact the male reproductive system to make a birth control that worked and was reversible. And these programs were long-term. They were doing the bench science, trying to make a drug, but they were also doing things like surveys to learn what men wanted in a birth control. They did focus groups with single and married folk to compare them. And the idea was to use that information to guide research. Would men want an injectable or a pill or something totally different? It was information that laid the foundation for a long, fruitful exploration of male birth control. We started to get a sense of the types of products that um, you know, people uh, would, would accept. Greg's program was learning more, getting set for the future, and then all of a sudden... Wyeth shut down the program. In 2006, Wyeth pulled out of male contraceptive development, and Greg moved on to a new job, as did pretty much everyone else. Then other programs, the ones at Sharing, Merck, and everywhere else, they followed suit. Most of them were completely out of the male contraceptive game by 2008. It happened quickly, and it happened pretty much universally. It was almost like someone smelled something they didn't like, and everyone ran for the hills all at once. So, what happened? Why did everyone get their feet wet and then bail? I think there are a number of factors behind this. Business people look solely at the bottom line. And the cost of developing a drug from that early discovery to getting a product on the market, on the market through FDA approval, it's a very expensive process. Um, you, you would hear numbers anywhere between one to two billion dollars. And so they would weigh that development cost, say for a new male contraceptive that would change the paradigm, uh, against the products that are out there now. Wyeth was fine with maintaining their current portfolio of pro contraceptive products that are out there because they weren't blockbuster products. None of them were, okay? But they were a cash cow. They're inexpensive, really inexpensive to make, and they were getting good returns on their dollars. Basically, everyone decided it wasn't worth it. They learned that these drugs are gonna have to be very effective very safe, and probably very cheap. And they also learned that they've already got drugs that work well. Will adding another to the mix really bring in the money? Will we be able to recoup this billion-dollar investment when things hit the market? Note that this happened in the mid-2000s. At that point, there were lots of questions about how the FDA-approved drugs or the skyrocketing cost of R&D, not to mention the overall economy. Drug companies were really starting to hone in on things like cardiology and cancer research, Areas where life-saving therapies get covered by insurance, and the risk of making the money back is low. Male birth control didn't have that same sort of evidence behind it. So today, the pharmaceutical industry has made an exit from contraception in general. Male, female, whatever. The big players generally aren't interested in developing anything new, and it has everything to do with money. They don't think that new birth control methods are going to make enough to pay for themselves, and they're worried things could crash before they even get that far, or worse, get tied up in legal challenges once they do. Does male birth control really need Big Pharma to move on, to get all the way to the market? It's hard to say. They do have the money, and drug development is crazy expensive, that we know. But the model for how to get a drug to market has changed from those days in the early 2000s. 
it's not just big pharmaceutical companies developing things from scratch anymore. Now we see lots of startups and collectives that do the early work, and then the big pharma companies end up buying something that doesn't have as much risk. There's also social mission-driven pharma companies that are small and they're focused on a big mission and you use a drug to get there. That means they're less focused on the bottom line and more focused on an overall goal of helping the world. And on top of that, there are new ways to get drugs to market quickly and efficiently. New support from nonprofits like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, MCI, and government agencies, they're also helping to push and build the contraceptive world. And all these things together make it seem like we don't need big pharma. Like, forget them, let's all just group up, we'll set off on this grand adventure and we'll do it our own way. But of course things aren't that simple. I wanna make something clear here. I am super excited about male birth control. Lots of really smart people are getting close. We're seeing research push through barriers that have stood for decades and misconceptions like, oh, men won't take it. They're falling as guys stand up and start to say, yeah, I will. I see this trend line moving in the right direction, and I'm absolutely sure that male birth control is going to get made by somebody. In fact, I feel so sure about this that it makes me wonder, is Big Pharma seeing something I'm not? I don't know. But I do know that while we may not need Big Pharma to get male contraception across the finish line, they would certainly make a difference. So, Despite working on male contraceptives for over 60 years, multiple clinical trials, and a world that largely accepts and uses female contraception, we still don't have a male option. More than that, there's a litany of past failures, a pharmaceutical industry that's lost interest, and an expensive, cloudy pathway forward. It might sound like it's hard to be optimistic, but there are exciting developments happening right now. There's research going on trying to make products like a reversible vasectomy, new birth control options that you could take right before sex. And there are multiple hormonal contraceptives for men that are being tested in clinical trials right now. On the other hand, none of these projects have big commercial money behind them. The players are a mix of academics, startups, and philanthropy, all working together with limited resources to do what they think can be done, bring the first male birth control to market. It's going to take hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars to bring a male birth control to market, even though nobody wants to step up and finance the next big thing. It's going to take decades, even though we've been 10 years away from a male pill since Eisenhower was president. It's going to take expertise, hard work, and probably some luck too. So yeah, we're optimistic. We're optimistic because this space is full of scrappy, smart people who are all individually and collectively closer to a male pill than we've ever been. These people are driven and they want to be the first. They know it's risky. They know it's going to take time. And they know how many have failed before them. And despite it all, they're still here, scrapping away, getting the work done. Coming up next time on Attended, we talk to some of those people. We understand what's going on, how the science works, and what that means for the sort of products that could end up on your shelf. Special thanks for this episode goes out to Catherine Carpenter, Beth Snyder, Jill Surgeson, and Becky Sullivan. Music from Blue Dot Sessions. Intended is written and produced by myself and Kevin Shane out of the offices of Male Contraceptive Initiative in Durham, North Carolina. Our executive director is Heather Vidot. I'm Logan Nichols. 
Intended as a project of Male Contraceptive Initiative, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to advancing the development of reversible, non-hormonal contraceptive options for men. For more information or to donate to our cause, visit malecontraceptive.org. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and other social networks by searching Male Contraceptive. If you like our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes and share us with your friends. If you'd like to be a part of Intended, want to share your thoughts on male contraception, or just want to reach out, record a 30-second voice memo on your phone and email it to intended at malecontraceptive.org. You might make it onto the show. Thanks for listening. Before we go, here's something completely different. So, despite working on... uh, So, despite working on... So, so... Despite working on male contraceptives for over 60 years, multiple clinical trials, and a world that largely accepts and uses...